Hello, and welcome to a roundtable discussion on the Topic of Page podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, I'm joined by guests for a lively conversation on a topic we hope you'll find interesting. Joining me for this roundtable discussion is my sister, Kay Callum. How are you doing tonight? I am good, and I am dry. That's good, because it sounds like there's a monsoon going on outside of our house right now, or my house right now. I don't know if it'll get picked up on the uh, recording or not, but uh, we're going to have a discussion, a spoiler-filled discussion, about Percy Jackson's Sea of Monsters, the second Percy Jackson film. And about halfway through, we're watching it, the movie hits a dramatic beat, and there's this loud crack of thunder. And we're like, you know that seemed a little odd for them to put it. Oh, wait, they didn't put that into the movie. That was actual thunder right behind us. Well, but in a movie that has Zeus and has dramatic things like that, yeah. I had to ask you, was that the movie? Was that Mother Nature? What just happened? What confused me is I didn't catch the lightning before it. Now, maybe it's the blackout curtains we've got for the projection system or something, but still. So, as I mentioned, this is going to be a spoiler-filled discussion for Percy Jackson's Sea of Monsters. Uh, we're going to spoil this, we're going to spoil the previous one, but we've already recorded about the previous one, so I think that's fair game. We will not include spoilers about the books, only because I haven't read the books. So I can't possibly spoiler, I may speculate. I was going to say, um, I did, since watching The Lightning Thief, when I mentioned I got curious about the books, I did check it out online, there's a bundle of the three books. Okay, as what's an the name of the set. third book? Oh, you know, I knew you were going to ask that, and I meant to have it handy. But you and don't. And I forgot to. No, okay. I don't. Because I got so sidetracked. They have teaching guides for the books. It makes sense, because this is the kind of books that are aimed, again, towards middle school students. And anything that gets them excited about reading can get them exposed, be it to the Greek gods or, or anything culturally relevant. You know, not that the Greek gods are major centerpieces of culture, but still that or king arthur or anything of the sort let them read it in school get them excited about reading i think one of the biggest disservices our educational system does is they make things boring to learn about when the moment things become obligatory and mandatory they become less interesting and less fun and that's a shame but couple that with uh, shakespeare with um uh, other classics of literature, be it mm-hmm. Robin Hood or, or King Arthur and stuff, things that are brilliant stories, but are heavy reading. Yes. Whereas if you can get something that's more contemporary, more of a page turner, like I would imagine the Percy Jackson stuff. I mean, if they wanted to teach Harry Potter in school. Well, and as we were watching the first book, I was thinking, you know... When I was in middle school, mm-hmm. I would have loved reading a few chapters of that every night before I went to sleep. Of course, mom and dad would have had to yell at me to actually put the book down and go to sleep because it looks like a page turner that would be so interesting. You'd want to have one sitting to read it. That's part of why I don't read as many novels these days and read more in comic book format. When I read a novel... I want to read it pretty much cover to cover in one sitting or in, in very short time duration. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm rushing through it, but I'm not the type to read a chapter a night. Yeah. Because I don't know if it's just that I've got horrible memory or what, but I can't keep the story in my brain in well, that kind of format. I get so caught up in the story. I just want to keep moving forward. I, you know, They end the chapters either on a cliffhanger or on a reveal, but something that makes me want to turn that page, makes me want to start that next chapter. My feeling is if the book is at a point where I can set it down and literally walk away for more than, say, a, a pit stop or grabbing another soda, but I mean, yeah. literally get up, walk away for hours on end, that's not a good sign for a book. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, when I was doing a lot more reading, it's when I was traveling and I was stuck on an airplane, cross country or whatever. I could go through two or three books. Yeah. Um, and what fascinated me about this, like I said, thinking it would have been a great read as you fell asleep or were getting ready for bed kind of book, was one of the things they had in these uh, guides for teachers was an interview with the author. Mm-hmm. 
And he mentioned that, and I'm going to use my own phrasing on this, but basically the rough draft of both of these books was him making up a bedtime story for his son. That makes sense. That was his first draft. Because if it was exciting enough for his son to want to hear it the next night and hear more. Talk about immediate feedback. Yeah. And uh, the author, Rick Rorden, was a middle school teacher. How old was his son at that point? Now, that is a great question. I don't think he said. Okay. I'm just curious. Mm-hmm. Having watched both the films, I noticed some, some major differences between the two. In the first, it was much more steeped in the gods of Olympus and stuff like that. Definitely. They don't obviously abandon that by any stretch, but we never hear from Poseidon. We only get one of the gods really showing up, and that's Hermes. Brilliantly cast. Brilliantly recast. True. True. Because he was Dylan Neal in the first movie, and this time it was Nathan Fillion. True. And I think Dylan Neal would have done a great job, too, but uh, Nathan Fillion can't go wrong with him. Yeah. But Camp Half-Blood, in the first movie, they're all decked out like they're from Athens or Sparta or something. Here, they're decked out like they're just some middle school camp. Yeah. It was very much your typical summer camp. If you watched the first movie, you were aware of Red Team versus Blue Team. Mm Mm-hmm. And in this movie, there was very much a red and blue color scheme for all the clothing everyone wore. More integ- people were wearing both red and blue versus True. having picked sides. True, but you were there. You didn't see people wearing pink or orange or green. They were really only wearing red and blue. Yeah, I just never got the feeling like these people were wearing blue and these other people were wearing red. True. And again, it was more contemporary. We got into, there were actually some solid built houses. Yeah. We had a different uh, uh, centaur as the, the teacher this time. Mm-hmm. Not, uh, not playing a different character. Yeah. Um, and Chiron was mentioned, but never seen. That was Pierce Brosnan in the first movie. Mm-hmm. In this movie, the I forget the character's name, but it was uh, Anthony Stewart Head, who played Giles on Buffy. Yeah. Great actor. He was also in, uh, I think, the Merlin series. Now, did you catch on what was happening to Dionysus? Yes. First off, I didn't care for the Dionysus character. I was baffled why put Dionysus here. It seemed like an odd choice or whatever, but he had been cursed by Zeus such that any wine or liquor he poured turned into water. Yes. Yes. Which is a cruel thing to do to the guy. Yeah. But it seemed like he was also at the camp, perhaps not so much as punishment, but to keep him safe. And that's interesting, because I did. I looked up the title of the third book is The Titan's Curse. And I don't know where Dionysus falls in. I don't recall among the Titans. he was not one of the Titans. I thought he was one of the Olympic demigods or lower gods. I thought he was a lower god. I think the, the Curse of the Titan comes in. With where this movie ends, mm-hmm. seemed to be setting up the next. Yeah, the cousins at war was the end of the uh, prophecy, and that seemed to be a relocated skeleton oracle of Delphi. Yes, up in the attic, which it was, was definitely the oracle of Delphi. Fascinating because the actual oracle of Delphi. When they finally got to modern science, modern archaeology, going to Delphi, trying to scientifically figure out, okay, what was going on at Delphi? Where Mm -hmm. were these predictions and prophecies coming from? What they realized was there was a crack in the stone beneath the temple at Delphi, and some gas, I don't know what it was, was coming up through the surface from the core of the earth. Okay. And it was giving hallucinations Uh. to whoever inhaled it. So they would have these stories about the Oracle of Delphi. She would go and she would lay down at this specific place in the temple. And that was where she would have her visions. And she would come out chanting gibberish. Well, you know, if you're high on something, unsurprising you're doing gibberish. And then the priests would translate. Yeah. What I liked here with the attic is... We go from the skeleton to it fades to him. He's recounting it mm-hmm. to uh, Anthony Stewart Head's character. And it's like yada, 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 and something will get raised. 
And that's raised with a Z, I asked. <laughs> yes, I loved it. Because one of the things about oracles in, in mythology is you shall go to war and an or army shall fall. Uh, they kind of leave out the fact that the army that's falling is yours. Mm-hmm. Th mm -hmm. They're truthful but ambiguous and misleading to whatever happens. See, I was right. Yes. Yes. So the fact that he had kind of picked up on that was cool. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that always intrigued me about the Oracle at Delphi was that they relied on the priest or priestess to, to translate and decipher mm -hmm. that gibberish. So they had that that fudge factor time yeah. to put it into the very vague, rhyming, poetic, I'm going to make it sound all amazing. So they really had twice as much time to come up with the prediction. Well, and I would imagine when somebody says, hey, I, I need a reading from the Oracle, you got to sense why they're coming. Yes. Yeah. With this, it felt like, and I don't know the origin of the books and stuff like that, but that the first book was kind of just done maybe as a one-off, and then, ooh, this has legs, let's go with another. When so we build in the prophecy, we build, you know, we bring Luke back. In the uh, interview, he said that the first book was done as a bedtime story to his son, and then he wrote it down and it became a book. And with the second one, he did the same thing. So I would suspect with the first one, it may very well have been a one-off of he had told his son this story to try and make the things he loved interesting to his son. And when his son was saying, you know, that was so good, my friends would enjoy it. Yeah. Maybe the point at which he wrote it. I guess with Lightning Thief, it felt like beginning, middle, and end, heroic journey, that mm -hmm. thing, end. And I didn't expect Luke to come back based on how it ended. This felt like a sequel. And I, I don't mean that in a bad way. Mm -hmm. It's just, hey, if you've got a property that's good, tell more in that world by yes. all means. But this one seemed to be not only doing that, but setting up future such sequels. Mm -hmm. It ends on a revelation that, ooh, this could be what the prophecy meant, really. Yes. And kind of kicking off that next movie, potentially. Well, and that's a very big difference. The first one ended very much end of story, and we shall send you on your way. Clean clothes. And this one ended on that revelation, as opposed to a, by the way, this is a world where more stories could be told. Look at Camp Half-Blood. We had a very clear, oh my God, come look at this character you thought was dead, and it turns out isn't. Here's this character that puts a new spin on the prophecy. Mm -hmm. Then we cut to another scene that is implying that something we thought was resolved is not. Yes. So this one left a lot more open-ended. It had a sense of closure, but not finality. Yeah. The other thing... I noticed, in addition to them not having the, the Greek and Sparta stuff and the feel of the camp being more, I almost would say TV reality show with the tower <laughs> they're climbing. Oh, and you know, the tower they were climbing, well, first of all, it's funny you say TV reality show because it had me thinking of, I want to say the show I'd seen a commercial for was called Wipeout. Something like I've seen, you yeah. You know, where it's one of those reality shows where they've clearly made a competition where the point is to make you wince and laugh at the person failing. Well, it's like an obstacle course where they're going to get dunked in the water, they're going to get knocked off mm -hmm. the pedestal, whatever. Mm -hmm. Same sort of a deal here. And it was fun. I liked it. I liked it, but what I really liked about Clarice and Percy going head-to-head, -head, if you will, on going up that tower was that they had very different ideas when they reached a critical point about what it meant to to have self-respect and achieve your goal. There was a character moment in there yes. where Percy had a decision to make, mm -hmm. and in Clarice's mind, he made the wrong one. Yes. But for a hero, he made the right one. Yes. Kind of, you know, it's it was yeah. interesting. That gave the camp a different feel than, let's just do capture the flag, something where you just need an area, not a specific, you know, climbing apparatus device sort of a thing. Yeah. And granted, well, the device was cool. And I think throughout the film, there were multiple occasions where Percy taught Clarice teamwork and the value of you stop and you help your fallen foe and you acknowledge you know, that someone else who is striving towards mm -hmm. the same goal 
as you doesn't have to be your competitor. Yes, that was her arc for the movie. Yeah. And I would expect her to come back in the next Mm -hmm. uh, book, story, movie, whatever. This one felt, in the movie, Mm because again, can't talk to the books, that the cab ride, the the literal roller coaster ride, and a few other things were very much, if they wanted to do a theme park attraction. Oh, yes. Or a video game, this is that. Mm Mm-hmm. So that gave it a different feel. I felt the effects, while impressive here, were not as good as the first film. This felt like a lower budget film. Well, it's funny because in the first film, I thought that the ride through the River Styx reminded me of Pirates of the Caribbean. Okay, fair. I guess to me, it didn't feel like an amusement park ride. Oh, I get what you're saying. But it was funny because when they got on the ride in this one, two of the characters out and out saying it's a small world. Yeah. And that entertained me endlessly because it was almost an acknowledgement on their part. To me, it's the difference between Luke in the original Star Wars being in the X-Wing flying around and Anakin in the pod race. Yeah, I can see that. One feels a little more contrived. We need some action and stuff. Yeah. The other is just part of the story. Well, and in the first one, we had the reluctant hero. Mm Mm-hmm. And the second one, I found it fascinating. We had the the hero who's lost his confidence because he thinks he's a one-quest wonder. I love that phrase, by the way. Yeah, so did I. Yeah. I thought that was, that was interesting. Yeah, and there was a lot of great stuff. I loved when uh, Grover was saying, well, but you did great on this training exercise, right? And he's like, no, Clarice won that. Well, what about this one? No, Clarice won this. And you see Annabeth in the background going, just be quiet. Just stop at that point. <laughs> yeah. Annabeth, I thought, got the short end of the script for the most part. She did. For the one who's supposed to be the brilliant tactician, I mean, she wasn't even in the top two in any of these competitions. At best, she was third place. I mean, they should have had, well, what about this? And Annabeth should have raised, no, that was me. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of a thing. If it had gotten to where there was a more of a, an even playing field. But that wasn't the case. It was like, well, but he was almost a has-been. I got the feeling that Annabeth had decided that instead of competing for top place, she was training Percy for his destiny. That she was now his right-hand person. I kind of got that, but I think they could have sold that a lot more explicitly and better. I think so, too. She didn't, we never saw her explicitly training him. We never saw, I mean, when it's a, what do we do when we're in the belly of the beast? That would have been a good time for her to say, hey, what about this? Well, and she didn't know what to do with the tape gun, which for the record, I loved that the tape had the Greek key pattern on it. I like it it had the Greek key pattern, but the tape gun to to, uh, obliterate something seemed odd, contrived, and... But it came from the messenger at the UPS store, so I can kind of see why they went with the tape gun, given who gave it to them, but I would have liked a better prop, personally. I can see the, this is how he gets in and out of everything, but a a skeleton key kind of a deal for Hermes might have worked better. Yeah. Or, and again, the the, um, thermos of, of tornadoes or whatever. That was funny. It was funny, but you've got two sons of Poseidon at this point, and they need something to power a boat. I had a few issues when they were in the water because it was two sons of Poseidon. Um, I mean, first of all, they need help powering the boat, but in you know we haven't mentioned why they're two sons of Poseidon, so we'll come back to that. But one son of Poseidon drops the uh, speedboat engine. Yeah, well, the th- and the thermos oh. later. Oh, yeah, yeah. But first, he drops the engine. Okay, so he drops something into an ocean of water. He has shown that he can summon an animal from the water to help him, but he can't get the engine to be brought back to him. This get- son of Poseidon is mm-hmm. half god, half nymph. Yes. So he's a cyclops. That's interesting genetics, by the way. Yeah. I didn't totally care for the character. He seemed to be serving the role that Grover was in as the, you know, mythical, uh, uh, exotic kind of a sidekick or whatever. In other shows or TV movies type things, it would have been the uh, Chewbacca. Yes and no. Or uh, uh, Spock or the, the exotic one. 
I, I say yes and no because this is aimed at middle school kids. And I say that because you're aiming this at a group of kids that has to deal with the blended families, with the half-siblings, etc. Those that are different. Yeah. Well, but bringing in a half-brother that you didn't know about... And how do you embrace a new family member either you didn't know about or you didn't want? It's an interesting problem to put before, and I was surprised that this was saying he was in seventh grade, which I should have expected because this is aimed at middle school, so he should the be uh, the oh, character. Percy, Percy is oh, seventh okay, grader. Yeah, the interview yeah. mentioned okay. that, and I was like, I, I don't know. For some reason, I thought he was, you know, Ninth grade, eighth grade. I would have put him more high school at this point, but yeah. Yeah, so I read that and I was like, wow, okay, he's younger than I thought. Um, but I think there was a little bit of a trying to help that age group to understand embracing blended families. And I get that. I appreciate that. But to me, that's more writing for kids, whereas I felt the first movie was more all ages. Yeah. And the other difference between the two movies is the first one had... Some big name actors. Yes. This one, the biggest name I would say was probably Anthony Stewart Head. Ron Perlman did a voice. Did a voice. True, true. Um, I think there were one or two others that I recognized in the closing credits. But yeah, it, it was definitely, they didn't pull out the names. You didn't have people that have headlined movies and TV shows on their own. Yeah. I mean, Anthony Stewart Head, don't get me wrong, has done a lot on TV and stuff, um, and has headlined a few things over in the UK. They put a lot more weight on the kids, if you will, for this one. I totally agree with that. Well, even in the first one, the kids were the stars, but the adults, the gods, were recognizable, in some cases, big-name actors, whereas I felt they went a little lower budget on the, the, the casting. Mm-hmm. Not that they got less talent. But, you know, they kind of, you don't have an Uma Thurman. You don't have, again, a Pierce Brosnan and Sean Bean, uh, mm-hmm. Kevin McKidd, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So. And really, Nathan Fillion was in two locations, one scene. Yeah. One location and probably green screen for the rest, it almost felt like. Well, but that's why I'm saying two locations. He was in the UPS storefront and then he was in the back office. Whether yeah, yeah. you're calling that a location or a green screen filming. Fair enough, fair enough. That was so technically he could have filmed all his stuff one day. Yeah. Is what I'm thinking. Absolutely, absolutely. And given what he's doing on Castle and stuff, may have. Yeah. Again, thought it was cool to bring him in. Well, and he has the sense of humor that I think they were going for with that character. So I can see where somebody just read through that script and just almost heard his voice in their head. Mm-hmm. He just felt like a natural. Not to say I don't think Dylan Neal would have done a great job, because I respect the heck out of the work I've seen him do elsewhere. But it's a natural fit for Nathan. Exactly. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. It was interesting, though, because it seems to be okay for gods to talk to other gods' kids, just yeah. not their own kids. Yeah. The rules on that is a little yeah. weird. Well, and it was interesting that, uh, you know, we were talking even during the film that you know percy seemed to be so grateful that he had the golden fleece to heal annabeth while he was on an island surrounded by water because he seemed to have forgotten that he could carry her to the water and use the power of poseidon to heal her himself which he did in the first movie or even brought the water to him yeah you know and when uh, his half-brother was shot defending him and fell down into the water, which is when the clap of thunder scared me to death uh, in real life, you know, I saw him falling into the water and you said, oh, the power of Poseidon will heal him. And I said, oh, yeah, okay, I can rest easy now. I mean, it was supposed to be one of those, he's fallen to his death, we'll never see him again. I'm like, no, we, we will. Right, right at the climactic moment when we need him to save the day and yeah. prove his worth or whatever. But when Percy did see him again, he'd clearly forgotten that the power of Poseidon healed. And yet he'd used it repeatedly. There were a few things where I felt, and this goes back to the writing, whether it's the script of the movie or how much is in the book, couldn't tell you. But the writing didn't seem as sophisticated as as with it. Because again, there are a couple of places like, well, wait a sec. Again, uh, he's got the power of Poseidon. If he can go 
ride a wave to get away from a yacht. They've got a lifeboat and they can't yeah. they can't propel it somehow. Yeah. Um there were inconsistencies that I don't know where they came in, but they were sufficient for me to notice even as I was viewing it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's not bad writing. It wasn't no. a bad film. I enjoyed it immensely. But if if we had watched this first and then had to decide, you know, do we get the Lightning Thief or not? Mm-mm. Lightning Thief was a much better film. It was, yeah. You know, there were certain things here that this was coasting a little on being a sequel. It felt a little, like I said, lower budget. There are a few more kind of either plot holes or story weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still well done. If they do a third movie, certainly I'll pick it up. Yeah. I've, I've enjoyed this world. Oh, I've definitely enjoyed this world. I... I wasn't thrilled Luke came back. I thought that was a mistake, one, to bring him back, but two, to bring him back as the main antagonist, because he's starting to feel, I almost want to say like um, in Harry Potter, uh, was it Draco, uh, Malfoy, Mm. the kid that that was kind of presumably the thorn in Harry's side early on, Yeah. but then almost, you know, also Luke's kind of the equivalent of Voldemort. Yeah. Of the constant, you know, cause of all evil here. Yeah. And the impression I get with how this movie ends is the third movie, Luke plays into that. Yeah. So it's almost a little too personal between Percy and Luke. Mm-hmm. Now you throw in um, Talia into the mix and, you know, how does that play out? Yeah. Well, and I guess I just feel I haven't been given a motivation for Luke to be aiming at Percy. And it does feel targeted at Percy to me, not just all of Camp Half-Blood. I think at first Percy was just a convenient person to put in the middle. With this one, I didn't feel it was aimed at Percy so much as Luke was still just really miffed that, uh, you know, the demigods hadn't been able to take over. Well, Luke seemed to realize Percy was the one the prophecy talked about. Yeah. He knew about the prophecy. He told Percy to find out about the prophecy. Yeah. So. How much of that was just Luke had bested him before, or been bested by Percy before? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously he knows Percy's somebody to be contended with. Or right, now, you know. the flip side to all of this is Luke is the one who forced them, A, to do the things in the prophecy, but B, to go get the golden fleece, to bring it back. He poisoned the tree, so they had to put the golden fleece mm-hmm. on the tree to resurrect he the tree. instigated everything. So Luke is the reason that Talia was revived. Luke is the reason that there is now a child of Zeus, a first cousin of Percy's, that he conceivably has to go against. Take that back a step. Imagine this entire narrative world mm-hmm. with one change. Luke doesn't exist. Mm, yeah. How much of any of this happens? You just pointed out this movie doesn't. Yeah. The previous one doesn't. Yeah. Because Luke's the one who stole the lightning bolt. Yeah. So without Luke, it's a fascinating world in which nothing happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's... E- I gotta wonder if the the author is just relying a little too heavily on that character. Yeah. It makes me twice as curious to read the books. Yeah. I'm curious how much of this is Hollywood kind of retooling it and saying, mm-hmm. well, let's just use this character. Because for all we know, in the Sea of Monsters book, it's it's totally different antagonist. Well, Unlikely, but could be. Books always have some extra plot lines that yeah. don't make it to the film. Oh, absolutely. So I'm wondering if uh, Abath had more in uh, Sea of Monsters that just didn't make it into the film? Because that felt like a short film. It was... It felt like it was about 90 minutes. I'm thinking 106 minutes, but I don't have my glasses on, so I can't read uh, the well, tiny, tiny print. You're going blind in your old age is I am. unfortunate. It's right there. Okay, I was trying to figure out how long the first movie was. First movie was a little over two hours, I think. Yeah, see, the second movie was 106 minutes. So, so under two hours, about an hour 45. Yeah, so the first movie had a lot more content. Well, not only did it have more screen time and therefore more content, it's hard for me to say that the cab ride 
while there was a little exposition in there that paid off, that felt more screen time than content. Yeah. And there were one or two other places I kind of felt the same way. Well, and the the thing that the cab ride gave us that I did find interesting was in the first one, Percy Jackson thought he was very dyslexic. Mm-hmm. And it turned out, as one character put it, you're hardwired to read ancient Greek, not modern English. Yeah. Which I thought was, you know, okay, that's an interesting concept. I can I can kind of work with this. But in this one, because he's the son of Poseidon, when he gets out in the middle of the ocean, he's also hardwired to read the ocean. Yeah, the fact he could kind of see the map lines and such, which is interesting in so much as... In ancient times, those didn't even exist. I was going to say, he didn't read the ocean I would have felt he would read the ocean, but that's because I've grown up knowing a naval navigator. Well, my point is he read it like a naval navigator. He would see the coordinates, the latitude, the longitude. But he wasn't seeing the topography. The currents. Yes, that's how I felt he should have. He should have been reading the water, Mm -hmm. not the position where they are or something. He wasn't seeing any of the channels Mm -hmm. or currents. He was only seeing basically what a globe draws over the oceans, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, again, the latitude and longitude lines. And it's interesting because if he had been able to envision a globe and this is where we are on it, that would have worked. It would have been a little more expensive to do the effects. Yes. But it was one of those less obvious advantages of being the son of Poseidon. Yeah, but I liked it when that came up. I was Mm -hmm. like, you know, like I said, with our access to a naval navigator, I saw more ways it could have come in, and I would have enjoyed if it had gone into a nighttime scene, having him also have an intuitive knowledge of the stars Mm -hmm. because of all the effect that the stars and the moon have on the tides navigation etc yeah or if at some point it mattered if they were high tide or low tide and he just knew which it was yes yeah Yeah. i can see that so the other thing i found when i was looking into the hmm i may need to get these books was that there is a book i believe is called percy jackson's guide to the ancient gods and goddesses Mm -hmm. i'll be getting the ebook if i get this because i'm curious about that one because it it sounds cool but you were saying uh earlier today that was what 400 pages or 450 pages in a hardback and since i want access to it while we're on our bucket list trip i'm not packing that to carry overseas no no that's it's too big of a book to to physically carry around but in fairness, there are a lot of gods and goddesses of, of ancient mythology. Well, exactly. And quite frankly, I mean, I, I went to college and studied this stuff and I enjoyed studying it there. But reading a book aimed at a middle school crowd, I think you would get a more entertaining rundown Absolutely. of the gods. And having it written by a teacher, I would have more confidence in this book than in some of the books I've seen. Well, and somebody who seems to want to balance accuracy of ancient mythology with a modern entertainment sensibility Yeah, to where it, it becomes relevant at that point. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm very curious about that just because of the number of things they've already touched on. Yeah. Nymphs, centaurs, uh, uh, satyrs, obviously the gods themselves, Medusa... You know, there's a, a Cyclops, there's a ton of, of mythological elements to this. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, what other major ones are there that they will draw on in future books? Well, and they mentioned in the first movie that uh, Athena and Poseidon had uh, had a feud because of Athens choosing Athena to be... Right, as their god or... Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, so I'm thinking that there are a lot of cities and locations that have ties to the various gods and goddesses. And that's fascinating to me also. Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, I think I'm going to have to pick up that one as well. But like I said, the ebook edition may be my, uh, my well, version of choice. And if you pick up the books these movies are based on, I'd be curious to see what you think afterwards, uh, after reading it on 
what didn't they pull from the book into the movie? Where did they change stuff, do things differently? I'm always fascinated by what they didn't use because sometimes you'll read something and you'll go, okay, that would have been impossible to film even with either modern special effects or just the number of cast people that were called for or you can see something that makes you say in terms of production, you know, like the Quidditch match in Harry Potter, you're just amazed they managed to put that on film. But other times you'll look at a scene and you'll say, you know, this is a great character building moment. This is a great plot moment. Why didn't this make it in? Well, and in some of those cases, I've seen uh, movies where entire subplots from a book are just lock, stock and barrel removed. Yeah. It's not central to the core plot. It flushes out characters, it makes you understand things, whatever, but it can be pulled. Yeah. I've seen one or two movies uh, where when I later rewatched it on DVD with the deleted features and saw all the deleted features, the movie made sense. Yes. But in the theater, they'd cut out so much that the little narrative pieces that, that may explained certain things, I'm like, why is some of the, these characters even in the movie? Yeah. They don't do anything, what's going on, how did they get to hear what's going on there, because they, they cut poorly. Yeah. But with a movie based on a book, average book, two to three hundred pages, figure a page a minute in terms mm. of translating it to a movie, you got to cut some stuff. Exactly. Now, exactly. I don't know how long these books are. That's an interesting question and as well. being based towards uh, 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 middle school students, they may also be slightly larger font, slightly less per page. Mm-hmm. than a, a typical mass market book. They may not be. I, I really don't know. Um, but again, like when I've read some Star Trek novels that are, you know, sometimes in those cases, three or 400 pages, I mean, that's the equivalent of like five or six or maybe even seven or eight episodes of the show. Yeah. A 45 minute episode compared to, um, so it's just, it's, it's a different scale of story. And there are a couple of things that they may just have to gloss over when adapting it to a movie just to keep the story going. Now, there are three books. Is that total or is that just currently? Are there more books in the work? I think there's a total of five books in paperback. The ebook set I was looking at was a three book set. Oh, okay, but total of five. Yeah, that's what I'm seeing. I'm on the Barnes & Noble website at the moment. It says the first book is 377 pages. Okay, so they had to cut, I'm going to say, half the book to get it into a movie. Yeah, I'm seeing that there's a Percy Jackson and the Olympians five-book boxed set. Okay. I'm Um, curious how recent the latest book is and uh, if it's going to continue after that. Yeah. Again, I'm liking the world. I'm liking the concepts. I think the first movie did a better job executing than the second, but the second was still perfectly, you know, acceptable. Um, I want to see where they go, but... My fear is, again, Luke is going to be the main antagonist, and I'm kind of kind of over that. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I still think this is interesting fodder for a TV show, you know, kind of a Percy Jackson in the, the camp of the demigods. Yeah. Um, where we see more that's happening kind of between the movies, if you will. Yeah. I mean, really, if you set that up, the first season of such a TV show could be between Lightning Thief... And this film, the second season between this film and the next kind of a, to where things move forward well, over the, the breaks. Yeah, I couldn't tell how much time had passed, but clearly time had passed. Grover's horns had grown. Mm-hmm. Several competitions had taken place that Clarice had won. At least a year or two, but it was unclear. Yeah. And it was confusing to me when he was starting the opening narration with, you know, seven years ago, these these four kids came and only three made it type deal. Yeah. Because I'm like, it's been seven years since the last movie. And I'm like, no. Yeah. It took me a while. But it seemed to be saying that uh, Annabeth was 14 was my take on she seemed to arrive when she was seven Maybe five, but seem to be seven-ish. But aren't they contemporary with Clarice, who on the boat was saying she just learned to drive? True. That puts them closer to 15, 16. Yeah. So I'm not sure how old these kids are supposed to be. Yeah. And again, there's talk about when Percy hits 20. Yes. So it's a couple of books away. Yeah. Which could be the presumed end game of the series. Yeah, we have... 
The third book is The Titan's Curse. The fourth book is The Battle of the Labyrinth. The fifth book is The Last Olympian. And if I talked you into getting yourself all five books in paperback, you would be agreeing to read 1,840 pages. Which isn't all that bad, actually. You know, again, um, how many again? 1,840. Across five books. Five books. Okay, that's longer than I was thinking, actually. That's, um, all right. Still not that bad, but it's it's non-trivial. Yeah. I mean, I've gotten to where I can, when I was reading a lot of books... Go through about a, a page a minute kind of a thing. So I, I think I do read faster than a lot of other people. Because I've heard some people say, oh, it just takes weeks to get through a book or whatever. Or just hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours sort of a thing. Whereas to me, literally, if I had a free evening afternoon kind of a deal, I could get through your typical trade, you know, typical mass market paperback. Yeah. Um, it's just not having that kind of time to do it. Yeah. Well, and that's part of why I really like these movies Mm -hmm. is taking a really compelling story like this and putting it into a two hour immersive experience. Yeah. It gets it into a more digestible format for those of us who don't have the time or don't know that we want to invest the time in the book. Well, and quite frankly, it's talked me into investing at least into getting the ebooks and hopefully putting the time in mm-hmm. when I have it to reading it because it looks really compelling. Well, it's funny because one of the last prose novels I think I read, maybe not the last one, but one of the last probably certainly five, was uh, the one that Edge of Tomorrow was based on. Mm. All, All I Need is Kill, I think is the yeah. title. Great book, definite page turner, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So again, getting immersed into a good movie, finding when you like, Wanting to learn more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm of the mindset that you're better off watching the movie and then reading the book. Yeah. Because the book will flesh it out more. Yeah. And yeah, you know the basics of the story, but you don't know all the journey. Yeah. Um, whereas if you read the book first, you're liable to be disappointed in the film because, oh, well, where was all this? They cut this. That wasn't as good. That's not how I envisioned it. Mm-hmm. And either way... Whichever you consume first r- runs the risk of spoiling the other. Yeah. But well, on more than one occasion, I've read the book before seeing either the TV show, you know, TV miniseries or film based on. And I find myself waiting for that scene I loved in the book. Yeah. And if it's never on the screen, you're just so devastated that that moment you loved never came. To me, that's the insidious thing about spoilers about advanced information on stories is it sets expectations yeah you know i thought this was gonna happen it was in the book i had heard about this it was in the trailer whatever and because of that particular anticipation and expectation you view the film differently yeah you know the first movie here uh lightning thief set expectations on level of story quality, nature of some of the actors that would be involved, that sort of a thing, that the second film here, Sea of Monsters, really didn't live up to. Well, to be honest, just from the title Sea of Monsters, I expected more monsters in the sea. We didn't get a single sea monster to speak of. We got the one we went into the belly of. Charybdis or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we got that. We were told Cyclopses aren't monsters, so those don't count. Mm-hmm. Um, we got the bull at the beginning, but that's not a sea of monsters or a monster of the sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that was... Uh, I was expecting a little bit more mm-hmm. in the way of... We discovered early on that Sea of Monsters was a name for the Bermuda Triangle. And it's really Sea of Monster singular, it seems like. Yeah. Because that's where all the stuff in the Bermuda Triangle wound up was the belly of the beast they yeah. landed in. And I did like how they found Clarice in there. That was funny. It was funny where she'd gotten the ship, the crew of it. It was it was some good stuff. Yeah. But I didn't understand Dionysus's putting that team on that quest, having turned down, you know, uh, Annabeth and, and Grover, who'd said, we'll do it. Yeah. So... Again, there are parts of the story that just didn't make sense to me, but not in a way that, that ruined it, but in a way that certainly didn't help it. Yeah. Whereas I didn't feel that way so much in the first film. There are a few things where I felt they 
Not that they telegraphed, but that I saw where they were going. Well, Dionysus clearly didn't respect Percy. Yeah. So I think he knew if he sent Abeth, Percy was going. And he didn't want Percy, who he thought was useless, going. But given Dionysus is basically the god of getting drunk, is how I sum him up, um, I'm not sure he's the one you want choosing who to go on a quest, etc. It did feel like that should have been um, Anthony Stewart Head's character's role. Yeah. And if there was some line of dialogue between those two characters that had said we can't keep protecting Percy forever. Yeah. That might have helped. It might have even explained why he wasn't winning. Games were rigged. That would have been funny. So, I'm, well, I'm curious about the books, though. I really liked the fact that Clarice would do anything to win. Because her sole goal was basically getting the brass ring. Whereas Percy would not leave a man behind, whether they were on his team or not, mm-hmm. in pursuit of the brass ring. Well, he thought you could do it all. That's the difference, I guess, between the, being the son of, of the god of the seas. I mean, the world is your oyster to a degree, pardon mm. the pun. And the daughter of the god of war. Mm-hmm. Winning is all that counts. Yeah. It was well done in that respect. They they found the cores of the character, and Clarice learned valuable lessons throughout the film. Yeah. Well, we now have a child of Poseidon, Hermes... Athena, Ares, and Zeus mm-hmm. as focal-ish characters to, to varying degrees. Mm-hmm. That does leave a n- number of the other gods to have kids that mm-hmm. can play into this. And, of course, there are many other three other books in the series so far. Yeah. So I'm wondering if we kind of round that out. I'm also wondering if we get another child of Hermes to mm-hmm. where there could... Well, I guess that wouldn't be cousins at that point. I was going to say to play into that prophecy. But Hermes was referring to them as cousins on the theory that, you know, you're off by a generation. The gods are all related, therefore, yeah. Yeah, you're still cousins. Which was an interesting, when Luke was saying that, I'm like, yeah, I get that. But the prophecy seemed to specifically say first cousin. Well, and of the three major gods. Yeah. Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. Yeah. So, I, I think the... Ancient mythologies of, of the different parts of the world have a lot of cool aspects to them, a lot of good story material, and it's fun to see both them in, in these sort of adaptations and updates, and then also, like I was saying before in the other episode, about how comics pull from these things. Definitely. You Definitely. Know, I mean, the um, again, Hercules having had his own title a few times, we, we've done the minotaur the 12 labors that kind of stuff in comics well and i would think the labyrinth if the concept if not the exact labyrinth has come up quite a bit in comics well it would be interesting to see if a assortment of superhero supervillain type characters could be done based on this mythology without going to for the obvious Mm. son of zeus son of hermes Mm -hmm. imagine if somebody had the power of the labyrinth yeah they well, could literally lose you in a maze. They would know how to find their way around any city. Yeah. You know, I I cannot do the gods off the top of my head, but Poseidon. Aquaman. Oh, totally. Aquaman, Namor. You could argue Hydro-Man as a villain. Uh, Iceman, even, to a degree. So there are a lot of, of riffs on that. Mm-hmm. Um, with, with Zeus, you can go for a couple, anything down from, you know, characters with just lightning powers. You could argue uh, with, like, Athena, you know, goddess of wisdom or whatever, Batman-type characters. Goddess of wisdom and strategy. And the hunt. Yes. Green Arrow. Yeah. So, I mean, there are a lot of those connections to be had. But if you go less from those obvious ones, but the stuff around it. Mm-hmm. I mean, going also towards uh, TV shows like Eureka and uh, Warehouse 13 and... I was saying, yeah, the librarians. I was going to say the librarians. The other one I was grasping for the the title of. Just finding all of the stuff from ancient mythology. Yeah. All the little widgets, tools, and so forth. Yeah. And just imagine if that was... Imagine if those sorts of events were continuing much like they're doing in the Percy Jackson films. And you had current day equivalents of widget du jour. Mm Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The, The 
again, the pen and the sword that he's got, the shield from the first movie, uh, not so much from this film because I thought they were a little quirky, but you get the, the, well, the winged tennis shoes from the first film. Yes. Artemis is goddess of the hunt. Artemis. And Artemis has been a comic book character, a comic book character called Artemis. Mm-hmm. They tend to be archers. Go yeah, figure. I was going to say goddess of the hunt and archery. So again, yeah. I can't do the the gods off the top of my head either. I had to uh, had to Google because I knew we were close, but not quite there. Ares, god of war, violence, and bloodshed. I think you can go with a few superheroes there. Well, and again, Ares himself in Wonder Woman has been an antagonist. Well, I was going to say Wonder Woman is the one I always come back to. Well, in the DC stuff, the pantheon tends to get referenced as the actual gods. In the Marvel, they can be the actual gods and still be members of, like, the Avengers. Because mm-hmm. I think Ares was an Avenger at one point on the Marvel side. Interesting. I'd have to double-check that. That would have been maybe ten years ago. Now, one of the ones that would, I would think, would probably correlate more to one of the, I know they don't like being called sidekicks, but more of a Cisco-type character, Hephaestus. Yeah. The master blacksmith and craftsman of the gods. You could argue there's a character very much like that in the Avengers. Iron Man. That's true. Yeah. So depending how you do the allegories. Yeah. You know, you've got half the Justice League can map to the Greek gods. Yeah. So it's it's interesting stuff. And again, these are fun movies. Uh, they did a good job. More so on the first, a little less so on the second. Uh, I don't know if a third one's coming down the pipe or not. Um, but if you do check out the books, uh, I'll be curious to hear what you have to say on those. Yeah, I plan to. I mean, I don't know how soon I'll get to read them, given how many things we have in the pipeline. But I definitely want to, and they're going on my to-be-read stack. Cool. Because I'm definitely looking forward to that. Percy Jackson Titan's Curse has a cast list, so I think they're talking about making it, at least. I know they were in talks, and the that there were plans as of sometime in 2014 of, yes, it's still in the works, but I hadn't heard anything recently to know if it was starting production or or how these two films did to warrant uh, if it would continue. Interesting. I Personally, I'd like to see a third one, especially if it pulls the gods back in, even if the gods aren't having major scenes of interaction with the demigods. I, I liked our visit up to Olympus. And seeing the gods interact with each other. I'd settle with just having a couple of more kids of some of the other gods that are hearing the voices and forming kind of a you know, the gods of Olympus Generation 2 kind of a deal. Yeah. Because they're already building towards that. They've got about half of them. Yeah. But at some point I may check out the Wikipedia page for the Percy Jackson stuff just to get a rundown of the basic plot, the overall stuff, and, and where they go with it. Yeah. So fun stuff worth checking out. I totally agree. Anything else? That pretty much do it. That does it. Cool. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.